You've tuned in to the Message to Kings podcast, where we tell the complete history. Welcome back to the Message to Kings podcast. This is your host, Brett Heaston, episode 14, Job. In the Bible, between the book of Esther, 479 B.C., and Psalms, 1000 B.C., is a book called the Book of Job. and It is the 18th book in the Bible, but chronologically, it should be within the book of Genesis. It is categorized with the book of Psalms and Proverbs because the book is a didactic poem. But most scholars believe it is not just a symbolic book or a book of poetry. Most scholars believe there was a real Job, and would have lived around the time of the patriarchs. Thus, a more accurate date for his life would have been around the time of the patriarchs. And and I didn't want to miss talking about Job in our timeline before we advance to Moses. The book of Job is a fascinating yet gripping book. It is taught in secular schools and universities because it is a great work of literature, but it is way more than that. One of the things that is most interesting is this book probably leads to more questions than it answers, and Job in himself is a mystery. Here are the clues in the book as to the timeline and history. He lived in the land of Uz, which was the son of Nahor, Abraham's brother. Also, there's a reference to the Sabaeans who lived in this timeline. In addition, his wealth was measured in livestock, not currency. Thus, he lived in an earlier time period prior to any monetary systems. In addition, he was termed a priest prior to the established priesthood in the time of Moses. Some say the land of us is lost to us, but I did locate this research by Matthew Henry. He stated most likely Job was from the family of Nahor, Abraham's brother, whose firstborn was us, for the story is said in the land of us. There are other possibilities, but according to Matthew Henry, the land of Uz was in eastern Arabia, which lays toward Chaldea near Euphrates, probably not far from Ur of the Chaldeans, where Abraham came from. He continued with the following. This is Matthew Henry's account. God called one man out of that country, yet he left not himself without witness, but raised up another in it to be a preacher of righteousness. God has his remnant in all places sealed ones in every nation. One last thing before we go on. Most likely Job was not a Hebrew. He was from the same family as Abraham, but not a descendant of Abraham. He was not the one who received the promises of Abraham, but he walked with the same God. He is an early example of God in relationship to Gentiles, or non-Hebrews, or later non-Israelites, or later non-Jews. Finally, there is no definitive proof of the authorship of the book. Some say Isaiah, others say Elihu from the book, and others say Moses or even a combination of writers. But there is no for sure known author of the book. But this is, to me, further evidence of his authenticity, that it would be passed down by the Hebrew writers and faithfully preserved book about an early Gentile who walked and suffered with God. All right, enough of the background. Let's go to the story. Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. 
He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So Job was a very righteous man. He did everything that was righteous and even repented for any sins committed by his children just in case. He really had what will be called later the fear of the Lord, and he understood the dark powers of sin and wanted nothing to do with it. Sin is not present in his life, and he walked in a measure of blessing that few have known. In fact, his righteousness was so great that this is what it says about Job's purity in Job 31. I made a covenant with my eyes to not lust upon a virgin. Job was a very, very righteous man who took purity very serious. It's looking like this is an outrageous story of a faithful, unchallenged walk with God. So far, it looks like he doesn't know conflict or struggle, and there's no enemy or adversary to this story. Or maybe we have not met the opposition yet. So no matter what happens next, we cannot say it is because of sin. I remember learning in English in high school and specifically about storytelling. Every story is conflict and opposition or there wouldn't be much of a story. There has to be conflict for there to be victory or call it simply glory. Glory comes through victory and achievement. Where evil is conquered, whether it is inner or outer demons. Who will achieve the glory in this story? So far it is Job who walks in God's glory which overshadows him. But this is until the devil, the accuser of the brethren, shows up. Job chapter 1, verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread through the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and it will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Wait, 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 stop here. Is this what I think it is? Did it really say that the devil spoke to God? What is this all about? I mean, really, it's a mystery, but there's a lot to work with here. This verse states the devil can accuse men of things and petition God for legal right to cause harm. Remember legal rights? That's what the serpent stole in the garden from Adam. We talked about this in the War in Heaven episode. It seems there was no way for harm to occur to Job unless the hedge was removed and the devil had a legal right or permission from God. This petition occurs in the book of Zechariah as well. In addition, the devil is called the accuser of the brethren in the New Testament. Jesus summarizes the devil's job description in Matthew 10. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil has the ability to be both the tempter and the prosecutor. He tempts people to give in to him. And if they agree through sin, he has legal rights to harass and control a person. 
It is the devil's age-old strategy, tempt man into sin, which grants him legal authority and control over men and families and nations. Again, this is gritty and nasty stuff. Some scholars believe, though the devil was thrown out of heaven, there is a portion, call it an outer court or courtroom, where he can petition the judge of the universe, like a courtroom to receive or legally obtain his legal rights. This is what some believe is going on here. The devil is speaking with God regarding Job. Here is the mystery of Job, though. There is no legal rights offered and allowed by Job to grant the devil access. The legal rights were actually handed over by God himself to the devil. Job was pretty flawless according to the Old Testament standards. Some have suggested there was a mysterious statement made by him that he fe- what he feared the most occurred to him. Job 3.25 What I feared most overtakes me. What I dread happens to me. Did he open a door through fear to give away some of his legal rights? I kind of struggle with this one because the consequences were so severe. It is clear according to the text, the hedge was removed. God's angelic protection was the hedge and it was removed. This is one of the great mysteries of Job. That bad things happen to a good person. But there is always redemption and revelation at the end of the story, which we'll get to. Why would God allow the devil to torment Job? We will try to address this question at the very end. Back to the storyline. Job chapter 1, verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties, swept down on your camels, carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this point, Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from their mother's room, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job had four calamities. His oxen for farming, and camels for trading, and sheep for livestock and clothing, and family were all gone within minutes. Wow, so Job has lost everything, and this is where the real testing occurs. It is interesting, Abraham and the patriarchs were tested sometimes severely, Job, as well, is being tested severely. To walk with God in this age, severe testing was part of the program. Job chapter 2. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth, 
He is blameless and upright, and a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin without any cause. Skin for skin, Satan said, a man will give all that he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Now Job came down with a severe condition. Job's condition was severe and it mirrors many disorders we know of today. But what I want to emphasize is the statement that he cut himself. I'd like to suggest because of the cutting, the condition was worse than we can imagine. He was in terrible, terrible pain. And he speaks in the book, and as he speaks in the book, his words are troubling because of the severe pain and bitterness that's among him because of his disorder in his skin. In his words, it is easy to see the wisdom of a man, but yet is combined with the emotion and the, and the severity of his trial. We will see his words are emotionally charged and troubling, yet as well they are full of spiritual knowledge and wisdom. Now the story changes, and it turns into a form of philosophical debates that's very deep. But first, his wife curses him. Job chapter 2, verse 9. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die! He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. All right, so his wife was clearly echoing the devil's plan for Job, and Job wasn't going to fall for it. Next, Job's three friends show up, and later a fourth. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nehemite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep out loud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with them for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Job must have been beyond belief, unrecognizable, and outrageously terrible looking. Job was in such a bad state, they sat quiet seven days and mourned with him. After the seven days, it starts with Job cursing the day he was born. But the key here is that he doesn't curse God. He questions him, but he doesn't curse or deny him despite everything. And this is where his friends try to make sense of everything. Instead of providing comfort, which his wife denied, they provide human and spiritual advice as faulty as it was. What Job needed was assurance and comfort and compassion. Job's three friends showed up and they appear to be obsessed with dealing with sin, failing to capture the mercy and grace of God. Before his friends questioned him, Job was not exactly shy about complaining either. Here's a list of some of uh, Job's statements. Job 6, Don't I have the right to complain? Job 7, I would rather be strangled rather than die like this. I hate my life. Job 9, For he attacks me with the storm and repeatedly wounds me without cause. 
Job is blaming God for his trouble, though it was from the devil, but it was God who allowed it to happen. Job refused to leave God and curse him, but accepts his torment, but the comments from earlier clearly document the emotional reaction to his troubles and the trial within him. His suffering was severe, and he was not afraid to speak about it. Here is a summary of his friend's responses. First, Eliphaz stated Job was suffering because he, he had sinned. Job's response was, take back your false accusations. Talk about beating someone when they're down. Here's another quote from Eliphaz. My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. Next, Bildad said, Job won't admit he sinned, so he's still suffering. Job gets angry with his friends. Bildad continues, Does the Almighty twist what is right? Your children must have sinned against him, so their punishment was well deserved. Ouch. Then Zophar gets aggressive and says, Job's sin deserves even more suffering than he's experiencing. Job's response was, I know that I will be justified. Yet Jophar continued, Listen, God is doubtlessly punishing you far less than you deserve. What is going on with these guys? They seem to be missing the mark regarding sin. They seem to be pointing to an obsession with sin. No one's perfect, that's why Jesus came. Root Problems, which are typically sin, are not always the reason for things. Regarding his friends, Job responds in Job 16, What miserable comforters you are! Won't you ever stop blowing hot air? There was a fourth guy who shows up, and he was a younger fellow. His name was Elihu. Some say he was a possible author of the book. He said, God is using suffering to mold and train Job. Well, not a bad statement. He seems to be setting up the conclusion, but he also gets a little condemning in Job 34. Job, you deserve the maximum penalty. In the middle of the discourse, there's a few pieces of gold that Job utters forth. He issues these words at least 1,500 years before Jesus. Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. This may be one of the greatest encounters of Job in the middle of the trial. He experienced a revelation of Jesus in his age that few experience and that few could experience without undergoing his trial. These are amazing words and very profound. He speaks of Jesus long before he walked the earth. There are very, very few references to eternal life in the Old Testament. But here is Job issuing forth this declaration. God himself answers the philosophical and spiritual debate among the five men with questions, not answers. This is where I'm going to cue up the inspired by audio Bible version because God speaks of the dinosaurs and the profoundness of his creation. Job cried out throughout the previous discourse with his friends with the word why, and God answers with the word who. It is profound the use of language and speech. Enjoy. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Prepare to defend yourself. I will question you, and you 
shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning star sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further? Here is where your proud waves hold. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born, you have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed, or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain, and a path for the thunderstorm, to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert to satisfy a desolate wasteland, and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens, when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you here we are. Who gives the ibis wisdom about the flooding of the Nile? Or gives the rooster understanding of when to crow? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her form? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down 
and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the farm with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on it for its great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand. Unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them, she treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet, when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It paws fiercely, rejoicing in its strength and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against its side, along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, it eats up the ground. It cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, it snorts. Aha! It catches the scent of battle from afar the shout of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? It dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. From there it looks for food. Its eyes detected from afar. Its young ones feast on blood. And where the slain are, there it is. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, prepared to defend yourself. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself 
in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Look at the behemoth which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. The heels bring it their produce and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surround it. A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure, though the Jordan should surge against its mouth. Can anyone capture it by the eyes, or trap it and pierce its nose? Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook, or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose, or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spares? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armor? Who dares open the doors of its mouth? Ringed about with fearsome teeth, its back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning weeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. Strength resides in its neck. Dismay goes before it. The folds of its flesh are tightly joined. 
They are firm and immovable. Its chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches it has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron, it treats like straw and bronze, like rotten wood. Arrows do not make it flee. Sling stones are like chaff to it. A club seems to it but a piece of straw. It laughs at the rattling of the lance. Its undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. It makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening weight behind it. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is its equal. A creature without fear, it looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job, will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer, and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naumathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapak. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, 
Job lived a hundred and forty years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died, old and full of years. To conclude this episode of Message of Kings, it would be good to suggest a reason for Job's suffering. It would be easy to get carried up in the why do good things happen to good people statement. But this can be a trap and roadblock that would prevent a person from learning and enjoying this book. Don't worry, I've been bothered by this for a long time as well, but there's so much more here with this account. If you can overlook the offensive part of the book, which is this question, there are treasures beneath the surface. The reason is pretty simple, once we step back a bit. The reason is, his suffering brought out Job's incredible character of faithfulness, which brought God the greatest glory in his life. Remember the common speech today, a person has the patience of Job? It's probably better stated, a person has the long-suffering of Job. See, Job's friends had an obsession with sin, and this obsession led them to accuse Job of things he did not do. This obsession can miss the mark. According to John 8, Jesus healed a blind man, and the Pharisees were interrogating him. They said, Who sent, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus' answer was, Neither this man nor his parents sent, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. This is a clue and answer to the difficult understanding of Job's affliction. It was for God's glory. Why did God allow this to happen? To bring him glory through Job's faithfulness. Job's faithfulness was not dependent on riches, his children, his family, or his health. He truly was a rich man who went to heaven. His faith was based upon God alone. Job had incredible character. Despite his sufferings, he was able to be faithful to the point of death. His faithfulness brought God glory. Job's faithfulness was so great the story is recorded for all to read in the Bible. It is no wonder Job's faithfulness to God has survived and has been studied for around 3,500 years. The devil tempted Job and he lost. This story shows and teaches us that a man can endure and be faithful to the end. This story shows us that man can fulfill the most important commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. If you like the podcast, please visit the Facebook page and leave a comment. And stay tuned next week as we talk about the royal training of Moses, talk about Josephus' mysterious statements about Moses, and talk about one of the first recorded acts of infanticide in world history and how it applies to history today. Also, if you like the podcast, I'd like to ask you to write up a positive review on iTunes. It will help the show get noticed, and if you have any questions or if you want to chat, please email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.